Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to abolish things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. In contrast, God is why you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God to you with superior speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, My speech and my proclamation were not made with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. This week, as we begin a journey in 1 Corinthians, it's helpful, I think, to know a little bit more about the city of Corinth. I found the comments by J. Paul Sampley in the New Interpreter's Bible Commentary to be helpful for us. Paul probably arrived in Corinth somewhere around the year 50 CE, which would be shortly after he had established churches already in Philippi and Thessalonica. In Paul's day, the city of Corinth was a hub of commercial and religious activity, It was especially known for artisan products like pottery, bronzes, and earthenware. The location of Corinth, just about 40 miles from where Athens is, meant that it was a place of religious diversity. Politically, Corinth had the status of colony, which was the greatest civic honor that could be given to one of those places a city in the Roman Empire. Roman laws were in place. Latin was the official language of the government, even though people commonly spoke Greek. And Paul's letters to Corinth that we have to go by, those were written in Greek. But as we know, when you think about it, each city, each town, has a particular feel to it, doesn't it? Kind of an atmosphere or a personality to the community. In Greek... The word to use to describe that would be ethos. So, sometimes people would say about the ethos of Corinth that it had a generally superficial cultural life. It also gained a reputation as a city where sailors would relish living in the city for a while, and then they would just move along after that. In some circles, it was even considered kind of a sin city. Whether accurate or not, people would often assume about Corinth that it was a place of wealth without culture. Furthermore, 
people often felt that the Corinthian wealthy were actually taking advantage of the poor among them. So eventually, it makes sense that it seems that the Corinthian church itself also developed a bit of a reputation. It was said about the Corinthian church, the Christians that were there, that they engaged in partisan strife. And it seems that maybe they had been doing exactly that right before Paul wrote his letter to them. You know, any community of faith seems to have its particular pitfalls, right? How it tends to lose focus on who they're called to be and what they're called to do as the body of Christ. Maybe for some churches, it might be that the main problem is gossip. Or maybe for another church, it might be a lack of generosity. Or maybe they shut themselves off from newcomers that would come. But you know, for Corinth, it seems that it was a matter of bickering about who's the most important among them. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We live in a day and age in which everything seems to be loaded with such a we versus they, us versus them mentality. And if we combine that built-in antagonism with our tendency to compete with one another about who is best or who is most important, I think it can really stunt our spiritual growth both individually and corporately. So Paul begins his letter by encouraging. He tells the Corinthians that he always thanks God for them because of the speaking and the knowledge and the grace that they exhibit and the presence of spiritual gifts among them. He encourages them. He says that the Lord will keep them strong and blameless right up until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he doesn't waste much time he kind of gets to the point, and quickly he moves on to talking about what he's dismayed about, in particular, the reports of arguments and divisions among them. Apparently, one thing that exacerbated the situation there at the congregation at Corinth is that that congregation was really a reflection or representation of the larger context of the city as well. This means that most of the people in the church were poor, and then there were a few believers who were quite rich, right? Some of the people had Latin names and were most likely of Roman descent, while some had Greek names. A few of them were of Jewish background, while most of the others in the congregation were Gentiles. So you could say that they were a diverse group. But apparently, one point of contention in the church at Corinth was the disparity of wealth. Why? Well, only the wealthy could afford to be the hosts for the people to gather for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, along with food and fellowship and worship. And in fact, apparently sometimes when the believers would gather, it was only the rich who really could afford to get there early. Consequently, you know what they did? Sometimes they ate up the best of the food or maybe even got drunk before the less wealthy people could even arrive. This tends to cause problems in the community of faith, right? Later in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, Paul refers to that problem as well. 
And then this whole scenario may have included the tendency for the church members to argue about who was the most important, who had the right perspective, or who was speaking on behalf of the most authoritative group. We can spend a lot of time comparing ourselves to others and trying to boast about ourselves, right? In his letter, Paul attempts to convince the believers to relate to one another in a new and different way. He basically says that none of them are any better or more important than any of the others. They all had to rely on the goodness of God. Don't we all? Even all these centuries later, Paul's message is relevant for us today. Paul was saying that God is the only source of true righteousness and holiness and wisdom. Furthermore, I think he was also saying that God is the source of our redemption through Jesus. So in that sense, we're all in the same boat, right? When it comes to comparing ourselves to the power and the prestige and the influence of others, I think we would be best off if we just stopped doing that kind of comparison at all. In verse 31 of the first chapter, Paul wrote, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, the only thing worth bragging about is God. Unfortunately, we can even turn that into a competition or an exclusion of others. Hey, look at all the wonderful and amazing things that God has done in our church, as opposed to a different church. Question, should we celebrate the ways that God is working in our lives of faith and in the life of our congregation? Answer, absolutely. In fact, I think it's imperative that we do. We should celebrate that. But a word of warning. We also need to be open to learning about the grace and love and power of God that is manifest in the lives of others, including other churches, other groups, other cultures. You see, if the loving God is God of everyone, then it would make sense for us that we don't try to claim that we somehow have a corner on the market of God's love. In that sense, we must guard our souls against being spiritually arrogant because it can happen so easily. If we hold on to the notion that truly God is the one who is working great things as we try to follow the Holy Spirit, then we will probably stay on the right track. But if we begin to think that it's somehow the result of our having better or more complete faith, or that our prayers are somehow more powerful, or that we're following the right person, then you know what? Maybe we should pray to God for more humility. Taking pride in things that separate us from others, or somehow make us feel better about ourselves than we feel about others, is a dangerous, dangerous thing that can often lead us to act in ways that simply aren't Christian. I'm preaching to myself, too, understand. I have to guard against such pride in my own life, 
You know, just because there happens to be a reverend in front of my name doesn't have anything to do with the fact that I still struggle with the same things as everyone else. I definitely do. Paul is pretty much telling the Christian believers, hey, you spend all this time arguing about who is better, so maybe you over here think this, and you over there think that, as if you have the best wisdom to offer, or you say you're connected to Apollos, or another one over there, they're connected to me, or another one says, no, I follow only Christ. So you argue, and you argue. Well, none of that matters because I didn't save myself, and I didn't make myself a new creature in Christ. God did that. So my best thinking and my best puzzling things out couldn't do any of that. It was God working in me, and maybe sometimes in spite of me. <laughs> now, I know that those were not exactly Paul's words, but I think it fits with his perspective. Granted, it might not do us any good to just go around willy-nilly talking about God's amazing grace at the drop of a hat. Frankly, that much bragging about God might make people think we're a little out of touch, right? I bet some of you remember those commercials for Cheerios about 20 years ago where a person's cholesterol was lowered by eating the whole grain cereal. So they were so excited about that change in their life, they'd answer the phone like this, hello, my cholesterol's down. And one guy, you might remember this in the commercial, he even rolled down, he rolled down his window at a traffic light so that he could share with another driver across the way that he had, you guessed it, lowered his cholesterol. My point is this. Maybe we don't have to go around and constantly talk about the great things God has done for us. Maybe it's more important that we live our lives in such a way and we show love and caring in such a way that people will know that there's something different about us. They'll be curious about us. They'll wonder, frankly, what makes us tick? What gives us that kind of joy and peace that they see we have? And how do we manage to be kind to people in a world that can be so often unkind? And they'll come to understand that it has to do with what we believe and how we choose to live out those beliefs. If we believe in the goodness of God, then we'll also believe that people whom God has made, have goodness in them. And then it makes it more doable for us to show them love and respect and caring. And this is a very different pathway from that which we would tend to go down if we start with the I'm more important than you mentality. To boast in the Lord is to give glory to God for the fact that we have life at all. It's also to give God the credit for offering us life abundant here on earth and the gift of eternal life as well. And giving thanks to God helps to guard us against puffing ourselves up 
and thinking that we're holier than others. You know, when we think about it, about what Jesus himself did when he walked on this earth as he prayed, ministered, taught, healed, cried, laughed, joked, went to parties, led his disciples. What kinds of things did he spend his time doing? Well, for one thing, he chose to eat meals with people that probably got rumors spread about him. He embraced fellowship with people on the fringe of society, which at that time were tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers, the forgotten ones who were pushed aside and mistreated. So why did he do that? Well, because he knew that God's love was needed there. He needed to give that example. But he truly had compassion on those whom he served. And I think also because he knew that if he didn't step up and show that kind of love to them, then maybe no one would. One of the most powerful quotes I've ever heard when it comes to things that Mother Teresa said is this. We can do no great things, only small things with great love. Just think, that statement was made by one of the most famous people ever. It's kind of ironic when you think about it because Mother Teresa was one of the most praised people who has ever lived and it's because she was so humble. I think there is much wisdom to be gleaned here. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, talked about how true wisdom comes only from God. Maybe true wisdom is just trying to do one small thing after another, but doing those things with great love. And then, maybe, just maybe, we can be successful in guarding our hearts against selfish pride. Because at that point, the only boasting that we would really want to do, the only bragging that would come out of our mouths, would be the kind of boasting that magnifies our loving and amazing God. And I think that what we learn is that the best way for us to lift up the name of the Lord is to be engaged in loving others in ways that truly lift them up. By encouraging them, offering them compassion, dignity, and respect. Getting back to Mother Teresa for a moment. At the acceptance speech for the Nobel Peace Prize in 1979, she said this as she recalled a pivotal moment in her ministry. Quote, I never forget when I brought a man from the street. He was covered with maggots, and his face was the only place that was clean. And yet that man, when we brought him to our home for the dying, he said just one sentence. I have lived like an animal in the street, but I'm going to die like an angel. Love and care, and he died beautifully. He went home to God, for dead is nothing but going home.
to God. And he, having enjoyed that love, that being wanted, that being loved, that being somebody to somebody, at the last moment, brought that joy in his life. End quote. Friends, when Mother Teresa looked into the eyes of that dying man, she wasn't looking for affirmation that the world would often tell us to strive after. No, she was just busy loving someone without limits, the way that God loves. So how do we do that? We do it by doing one small thing after another. You see, what mattered to Mother Teresa was that God had utilized her compassion to bring comfort and joy and peace to that man who was suffering. Because when we allow God to utilize our passions and our compassions to benefit others, we find that we ourselves come to a different place. And that place is deeper humility. And when we are in that place of deeper humility, we find ourselves forgetting about the question of how can I win the admiration of others and receive some glory? Because the new question that burns in our soul is this. How can I love someone in the name of God today? How can I do that? Like Paul says, the only thing worth bragging about is God. Everything else, when it comes to the things that the world tends to glorify, will come to an end. But the difference that will last forever is whether we have done small things with great love, such that we have brought joy to the souls of those who have been forgotten, ignored, or unwanted. That lasts. This may not be the kind of wisdom that is often embraced by society, but it is the wisdom, I believe, that comes from God. And I believe also that it is mission critical when it comes to living as Jesus would have us live. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.